Well, good morning, my church family. This marks our third week meeting in this manner. And I want to encourage each one of you that I have been greatly encouraged and uplifted by seeing the way that our our community has banded together the interaction and the the care shown by our EPBC members to their brothers and sisters in the church and in their community it has been very encouraging to see in the midst of these unique times and I want to see that each one of you would continue to um, care for one another as best you can from a distance. And in other news, I want to wish you all a happy Palm Sunday. Today we are going to be recognizing and appreciating one of the larger events on the typical Christian calendar. It is the beginning of Passion Week where we prepare ourselves to recount Christ's death and resurrection on Easter. And Palm Sunday is the day where we remember Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem and the end of His ministry here on earth. And honestly, this Easter season is going to probably look different than any in modern history. But... That being said, it is no less a cause for celebration. No, indeed, the current reality of the COVID-19 pandemic serves to highlight the fact that something in our world is broken. And it elevates in our mind the, the need for the, the hope that comes from the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. This world is not as it should be. Our hearts are not as they should be. But by the work of Christ and through the Holy Spirit, we have been given hope and a future that goes beyond the bounds of this world. So I'm becoming quite familiar with the observance of Palm Sunday because I realized as I was preparing that this is the fourth Palm Sunday in the last five that I've preached. And I'll blame it on Easter being a particularly busy time around churches between Palm Sunday and then Monday Thursday and then Easter Sunday and some churches also having Good Friday services. And it becomes a convenient Sunday for a senior pastor to relinquish his pulpit while preparing for the services surrounding Easter. And normally Palm Sunday has proven to be a good opportunity to do a separate standalone message focusing on Matthew's account of Jesus' triumphal entry in chapter 21 of the book of Matthew and tying in with the prophecy of Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 9. But I can't help but marvel at God's sovereignty in planning the outcome of our services, even just in our preaching rotation and our preaching series that we work through. God has long been working in my heart a desire to preach through the book of Hebrews. And today God has kindly provided me with a perfect segue into this wonderful book. 
Zechariah 9, which is the kind of the prophecy that kicked off Palm Sunday, this prophecy goes like this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is an Old Testament prophet speaking to the fathers of Israel, predicting the coming of Messiah, Christ the King. And glory only to God. Listen to our passage this morning, which is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Again, that's Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. If anyone wants to argue with me that God doesn't sovereignly ordain what He wants to say to His people here at this church by His Word, I will happily take them up on that challenge. I just happen to preach this Sunday. When I just happen to have finished my last series in the book of James. This just happens to be Palm Sunday, which happens to center around an Old Testament prophecy of Christ. And I just happen to be preaching on Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3, which happens to be about Christ and His supremacy, particularly over the Old Testament prophets. I don't know about you, but that is about five just happens too many for me. God puts these things together for His glory and for the good of His church. Would you join with me in prayer as we thank Him for the way He has organized our worship and for the great message that we have in our, in our passage today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that You have given us Your Word and that we don't have to blindly stumble around Your Word searching for some passage here or there to to preach on. But Lord, You've placed us in a church with expositional preaching, walking step by step through books of the Bible. And Lord, even in that, in something that could seem so um, routine and organized and just step by step by step, You still have managed to make each week uniquely applicable to to the things going on in our lives, to various events going on in our world. And Lord, You have shown us that Your Word does never return void. It is never without value. But Lord, Your Word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And Lord, we pray that Your Word would pierce our hearts and our minds this morning. That we might come to see the supremacy of Christ, that we might come to know the truth of who He is and to come to a greater appreciation and understanding of what that means for us as believers. 
So Lord, we thank you for our time together and all your blessings. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as God has been working in my heart to uh, guide me towards the book of Hebrews, I confess that immediately I came up with all, all manner of excuses to, to try to avoid this. It's a book that requires significant Old Testament and New Testament grounding. It has disputed authorship, disputed audience, disputed date of writing, and disputed place of origin. And some in Christian history have even disputed its position within the canon of Scripture. So, like I said, I, I kind of kicked against the goads trying to come up with an excuse not to preach through Hebrews, citing my own inadequacy, citing my own... Um, hesitation even going so far. Well, I just finished preaching through James and that's one after Hebrews, so am I just working my way backwards through, through the New Testament? But lo and behold, God has put it on my heart that this is, this is where He wants me to go and this is what He wants me to study and here I am still drawn back to this book of Hebrews. But, I honestly believe that this book has left me where where any preacher should be, humbled and excited. Besides being humbled by the task at hand of preaching through Hebrews, I'm also excited for where it's going to take us. And I want to spend a good chunk of our first message this morning doing a little bit of background on the book of Hebrews, just so we can all have a, an idea of where we're starting from on this book that is so beautiful, so, so theologically important, and yet also can be so difficult at times. In the book's conclusion, the author of Hebrews identifies it as a word of exhortation. It's a written sermon or homily that's designed to exhort, which is, to encourage or to admonish its audience. The author of Hebrews looks to drive home the supremacy of Christ over all. Over all beings, all systems, all beliefs, over anything and everything in the universe, Christ is supreme. He would have us know that Christ is sufficient and that faith in Him is necessary for salvation. The authorship of the book of Hebrews has long been a sticking point for many. Some have concluded it must be, it must be Paul. Some say it was Apollos. Some say it was Luke. Some say it was Barnabas. And some still say it was a tag team between Priscilla and Aquila. But the list goes on and on of these possible authors and most commentators I've found and preachers I've found, I know I have my own personal leanings. We all have our own kind of inklings of who we think it might be. But I beg to the early church father Origen who said, Who wrote the epistle? God only knows the truth. So I do not claim to know for certain who wrote this book. And I will happily discuss with people their their thoughts of who wrote this book. But thankfully, the author himself or herself, 
in some some ideas doesn't change the message of this book. But one of the issues that came along with the the disputed authorship is the fact that uncertainty as to its author has actually led some to question the book's presence in the canon of Scripture altogether. In early Christianity, the canonicity of New Testament books relied, I won't say entirely, but very heavily on their apostolic origins. So they were either to be written by an apostle or by someone very closely connected to the apostles. And lacking proof of such authorship has caused some to question the, the canonicity of the book of Hebrews. But again, I beg to greater minds than myself, John Calvin had a, a beautiful quote on the book of Hebrews. He said, I do not doubt that it has been through the craft of Satan that any have been led to dispute its authority. There is indeed no book in Holy Scripture which speaks so clearly of the priesthood of Christ, which so highly exalts the virtue and dignity of that only true sacrifice which He offered by His death, which so abundantly deals with the use of ceremonies as well as their abrogation, and, in a word, so fully explains that Christ is the end of the law. Let us, therefore, not allow the church of God or ourselves to be deprived of so great a benefit, but firmly defend the possession of it. And the last piece of background I wanted to offer on the book of Hebrews was, uh, was its audience. One might assume that the answer neatly falls in the name of the book, Hebrews. And on a grand scale, you would be correct. But I want you to remember, and a good chunk of this has to do with just our overall ability to study Scripture for ourselves at home and in our, in our worship, but the titles given to biblical books unless they're written in the actual text itself. The chapter numbers, the verse numbers, the section titles, and other divisions, for the most part, they are not to be considered as inspired scripture. The original manuscripts don't come with chapter headings and verse numbers and chapter numbers, and many of them don't even come with titles for the books, and Hebrews is one of those books. And oftentimes in, in letters, the New Testament epistles in particular, the audience are named outright. This is a letter to the church in Corinth or in Ephesus or whatever it might be. But that's not the case here. But the phrasing of this book and several other clues, however, give us who the intended audience would be, as well as kind of the time period in which they lived. The whole book of Hebrews, as you read it, you have to be familiar with the Old Testament, with particularly with Jewish law and the Jewish sacrificial system. So that points us towards a Hebrew or Jewish audience. And chapter 3, verse 1, narrows things down from just the Jewish people as a whole to particularly Jewish believers. The author of Hebrews calls the audience of the book 
holy brothers, you who share in heavenly calling. That that address itself can't apply to just any simple Jew. It has to be believing Jewish brothers and sisters. In chapter 2, verse 3 says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. So, the Lord Jesus Christ declared this great salvation, and then the message of that salvation came second-hand by those who heard. So that makes this audience Jewish believers who were removed from the direct ministry of Christ. They weren't ever ministered to directly, but they were kind of an indirect group. And the last little piece that we wanted to touch on here is that the present tense is used regarding the Jewish temple worship. Hebrews 9 verse 6 says, These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. And there are several other areas where the author talks about the Jewish temple worship as if it was still occurring regularly. And that tells us that the letter was pretty certainly written to Jewish believers prior to AD 70, which is when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. So all of these things combined to place this letter in the hands of a mid to late first century Jewish believer who had received and believed the message of the gospel, not from Christ himself, but from a secondary source. And while this may seem a little bit uh, in-depth and possibly irrelevant to some, the audience of any book of the, of the Bible is important for us to remember. As we study the Word, we must remember that these words that we have before us were written for a particular purpose. And as such, they have a specific intended effect on their intended audience. We can't simply take carte blanche and insert ourselves into the story in the place of any character that we might choose. I take a favorite example from a wonderful preacher named Matt Chandler. He in no uncertain terms, yelled at his audience saying, You're not David! He's referring here to the modern tendency to put ourselves in the place of David in the David and Goliath saga in 1 Samuel. That passage wasn't written with a switchable protagonist. You can't just say, David, uh, I'm going to put Josh in there and then view any promises to David as promises to myself. So that passage wasn't written with a switchable protagonist, and neither is ours today. We can't just simply substitute 21st century Gentiles into the place of 1st century Jews and assume that we can just run with what is being said. We do have to dig deeper in our study of any passage of Scripture and understand what it meant to the original audience so that we can understand what it might mean for us today. 
And that's what we're going to be trying to do as we work through the book of Hebrews in the foreseeable future of my sermons. And I absolutely love um, the late R.C. Sproul is quoted as saying, If I were ever cast into prison and had the option of having only one book with me, that the book I would choose, of course, would be the Bible. But if I had to narrow my choice further to choose one book of the Bible, the book that I would want with me in prison would be the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is so rich. It has such a wealth of information that covers the whole scope of the history of redemption. It is almost a capsule summary of the Old Testament, as well as the focus on the way in which Christ fulfills all of that Old Testament redemptive history. Beginning to end, this book of Hebrews shouts out the redemption work of God, accomplished in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our passage this morning identifies this flow from the Old Testament of the law and the prophets to the New Testament word of the Son of God. From this old covenant of temple worship and sacrifices to the new covenant of Christ's righteousness imputed us by grace through faith. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. So we're going to take some time this morning to break down this passage. And first and foremost in this passage, we need to recognize that God speaks. He has not left humanity the pinnacle of His creative efforts here on this earth. He has not left us adrift and without direction. You've heard me say it before that over the course of history... God has revealed Himself in many ways. We have general revelation in nature and in the world around us. Romans 1.20 says, For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. But that general revelation has never been enough. It makes mankind say, there there must be a God. But it's never been enough to teach them who that God might be. For that we need God's special revelation of Himself to make Himself known to us. And He does that for us today through Scripture. Upon humanity's fall in the Garden of Eden, they were no longer able to walk with their God as they had in the beginning. This God began communicating via His his chosen prophets. As our passage states, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. These prophets were granted the blessing and the opportunity to hear directly from God, to hear His words for His people. God had not left His people adrift. 
But this was still a limited form of communication. A person couldn't easily go to any random prophet and say, Hey, what, what does God have to say for me? God had always promised to restore His communion with His people. One day, they were promised that a Messiah would come and fix the damage that had been done to our individual relationships with God. And now in Christ, all of God's promises find their fulfillment. In these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He created the world. Christ is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And we are in a a strange, almost but not yet phase where all of God's promises have been fulfilled and are being fulfilled. And in certain senses, they will be fulfilled upon Christ's return. But God's revelation has progressed from the general, His fingerprints on the world, to the special revelation from There must be a lowercase g God somewhere to the I am God of Israel in the Old Testament. But he was still veiled for the safety of his people, taking up residence in pillars of clouds and fire and hiding people in rocks and concealed behind the the veil in the temple. But God's revelation progressed from there to Emmanuel, God with us in Christ Jesus. This God has not changed. The God who created the intricacies of our world that we can't say that there isn't a God is the same God that instituted the Old Testament form of worship and the great miracles that He he accomplished in saving and caring for his people. And that is the same God that today we can have relationship with through Christ. He is the same yesterday and today and forevermore. But our ability to know and commune with him has been progressively restored by the Lord and will be ultimately restored when we meet Him face to face, either at His return or when He calls us home. Our current relationship with God is no longer on the basis of the shed blood of animals in temple worship. No, our relationship with the Father is by the shed blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The book of Hebrews is about this God-man, the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And appropriately, it opens up giving us a brief but unbelievably theologically packed rundown of Jesus's credentials. In these last days he's spoken to us by a son whom he appointed heir of all things through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. God has made himself known by his 
fingerprints on the world through His chosen prophets, then now and finally through His Son, Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews gives us seven different credentials of Christ. And these credentials serve to provide an unassailable list of qualities which trump the claim of any other being. No man, no prophet, no king, no heavenly being can, compl- can claim superiority to Christ because there is none that can fulfill all of these things that He has fulfilled. First, He has been appointed the heir of all things. This echoes Psalm 2. Here in Psalm 2, God the Father says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. The Jesus revealed to us in Scripture is the just and rightful heir to all of creation. The entire universe and all things are under His Lordship. Christ is also the one through whom the world was created. So, as Christ is the rightful ruler of all things, He is also the genesis of all things. John 1, 1 1-3, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things that were were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. We are told throughout Scripture that Christ is the Father's agent in creation. And if we skip down a little bit in our passage, there is another piece that has to do with Christ and creation. Not only is He ruler and creative agent, He is also the sustaining power of creation. Colossians 1.17 says that Christ is before all things, and Him all things hold together. In truth, everything about our existence, our rightful ruler, our creation, and our sustenance, they are all found in Christ. All of these things are profoundly important to our understanding of our relationship with God. But I want to point to the first two points in verse 3 that we absolutely cannot afford to miss. Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Thanks to the tireless work of Pastor Jim, many of you have spent time learning of many of the heresies that our our Christian faith has gone through, old and new, through his time in Sunday school teaching. And for those of you that have joined these sessions you will know that the denial of Christ's divinity, the rejection of His deity, was and is a central concern of Christian orthodoxy. There are so many groups that say Christ was like God. Christ was God-light. And He is not. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. We know this even from Christ's own claims in John 1.7. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. 
Christ is God. Quoting theologian F.F. Bruce, what God essentially is, is made manifest in Christ. To see Christ is to see what the Father is like. And finally, the last credential that the author gives us in this opening passage. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Christ could be our rightful ruler. He could be our creation. He could be our sustenance. Christ could be the radiation of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. But absolutely none of this is good news to us. None of us have the opportunity to take this as good news until this final piece comes in. To the unrighteous, to them that deny God and in doing so condemn themselves, the fact that Christ is all of those things becomes their undoing. Their denial of Him, their denial of Christ is what damns them. Christ says in Matthew 10.33, Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. But honestly, all of us have denied Christ, either explicitly or implicitly. By our words or our deeds, we have refused His claim of lordship over our lives. We have refused to acknowledge His supremacy over all else. But praise be to God that Christ has made purification for sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. No one else could do this. No one else has the credentials. No one else lived the perfect sinless life. No one else willingly submitted themselves unto death. Christ is our perfect priest, holy and spotless, and He is the perfect spotless Lamb. Behold, He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This Christ is the one who rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. The one of whom the crowds shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The Jesus described in our passage was foretold by Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That same Jesus would surpass Zechariah and all of the other Old Testament prophets as God's revelation of himself. This Jesus is the one in whom we trust. Brothers and sisters, these days we need to be reminded of the supremacy of Christ. There's no person, there's no power, no circumstance, no pandemic, no nothing that surpasses Christ. Everything in our universe is subject to the rule of the heir of all things, Jesus Christ. Learn to rest and rely on this, my family. 
Learn to rest and rely on this and you will find no bottom to the well of benefits to your soul that comes from it. Let nothing and no one usurp Christ's rightful place as Lord of your hearts. And if you're listening to or watching this today and you have not recognized this as the truth, and honestly that's what you are doing, because Christ is Lord and this is truth, whether you have believed it or not, if you haven't recognized it, then cast aside your pride and acknowledge Christ as your King before it is too late. Truly Christ was Lord before anything else existed, and He is still Lord today. And He will still be Lord when He returns to gather His people to Himself And if we fail to submit to His Lordship, then we remain in rebellion to the Almighty God of the universe. And that is a fact that will not be overlooked come the end of all things. There is no salvation outside of Christ making purification for our sins. And that is only for those who have confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in their hearts that God has raised Him from the dead. My family, I pray that the supremacy of Christ would be a source of hope and not of dread for you. That you may earnestly desire His Lordship rather than kick against it. Because at the end of all things, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's not an optional thing. You will bow before Jesus Christ one day. It is whether or not you have bowed your heart to Him while there is still time to place your faith in Him. I thank the Lord for all of these things. I thank the Lord that Christ is supreme and that nothing I face in my day-to-day life, nothing I face in my family, nothing I face in my health, nothing I face anywhere is outside of His power, outside of His rule, and outside of His sovereign will. As we close this morning, I intend to end each sermon that I, I go through in this book of Hebrews, each sermon that God allows me to preach through this book, I want to end them all with the same benediction with which the author left his audience. I remember growing up, one of my senior pastors ended every sermon every day, every week for years with the exact same benediction. And there was a an element to which it became kind of a joking, kind of funny and what have you, but it's at the same time it impressed greatly on our hearts the the value of that that benediction found in Scripture. So I, I hope to do something similar by ending with this benediction from the book of Hebrews. So would you hear this benediction from the word this morning and then join with us in one more song as we as we close today. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, 
the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for joining us this morning. I encourage you to take some time to worship together as a family. Um, There will be provided some discussion questions on the church website, and I look forward to, to seeing how this message on the supremacy of Christ affects your your hearts and lives, particularly in this crazy and trying time for each one of us. Thank you, and God bless you.